0: welcome to the antioch podcast we're a justice-minded christian church in beautiful bend oregon seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things may the word of christ dwell in you fully and give you peace the scripture reading today is from the book of acts chapter 7 Verses 55 through 60. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, rescue or receive my my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Pat. I'm good, thanks. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. i uh, warn you up front with the uh, writer strike that's going on in Hollywood. The sermon might not be so good today. Um, so we'll see how the chatbots do. But... We're gonna talk about dying for our faith, so I'm glad you're here. Um, We're in Acts chapter seven, and we're looking at the story of Stephen, an early member of the Christian church. And um, Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the Jewish version of the Supreme Court. And the charge against him is that his Christian witness is disrupting the peace. So in Acts 6, they say, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. So they're getting tired of it, so they put Stephen on the stand and give him a chance to kind of explain himself. And they basically ask him, are you really claiming that this Jesus of Nazareth, who we crucified, has come back to life and that now he is the true king of the Jews? They're basically saying, are we correct in what you're claiming here? Because if so, not only is that blasphemy, it's also treason. It's basically the worst thing that a Jewish person could do. And so they ask him, are these charges true? Are you really going to pledge your allegiance to this crucified Jesus instead of the God of Israel and the government that he's put in place? And Stephen responds to them by preaching a sermon, and it's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, which is a book full of sermons. And he, throughout the course of chapter 7, Stephen walks through the whole of Jewish history, starting way back with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then God sending Moses to rescue his people out of Egypt, and then the prophets that God raised up to warn his people, and the promise of a Messiah who would one day come like a new Moses to lead the Israelites out of their sin and slavery. And so Stephen gives this sermon... And he ends it essentially the same way that Peter ends his sermon in Acts chapter 2 that we looked at a few weeks ago. The bad news, or the good news, is that the Messiah has come. That's the good news. The bad news is you guys killed him. Um, God came to you, and you murdered him. Um, Sanhedrin doesn't love him saying that. So verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth. So gnash your teeth at someone in the Bible basically means you're so angry and filled with rage that it's like the animal inside you awakens and you just want to destroy them. And so these Jewish Supreme Court justices do not like being told that they're guilty of murdering God. But Stephen, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Okay, so in the middle of this trial, God gives Stephen a vision of heaven. And he looks and he sees Yahweh, the creator God of Israel, seated on his throne, and Jesus standing at his right hand to this position of authority and honor. And Stephen's having this vision in the middle of the trial, and he describes it and tells everyone. And again, the Sanhedrin don't love it. Verse 57, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Okay, so it's interesting to compare Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter seven with Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two because what happened in Acts chapter two is really the best possible outcome when you give a sermon. 3000 people come to faith and are baptized on the spot. That's a pretty good day for a preacher. What happens in Acts chapter 7 is the worst possible outcome. (laughs) Stephen preaches the gospel. No one believes it. They drag him into the parking lot and they throw rocks at him until he's dead. I've preached some pretty bad sermons and I've ticked some people off. I've never had anyone try to kill me in the parking lot afterwards. And so Stephen here goes down as the first martyr in Christian history. He's known as the proto-martyr, the first of many that would follow. Martyr is an interesting word. It's the English transliteration of a Greek word that means witness. Martyr means witness. It's basically, that means that instead of translating the Greek word, we just adopted it into our own language. But if you wanted to translate the Greek word martyr into English, you'd use the word witness, which is what our Bibles usually do. So for example, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we usually say witnesses, that's what the text says, but Jesus literally says, you will be my martyrs. So Christian martyrdom, especially in the first three centuries, is one of the great legacies of the church. And someone told me recently, they don't think most Christians these days have any idea of this long history of martyrdom in Christianity. And I think that they're probably right, especially us as American Protestant evangelical Christians. We don't talk about this a lot. Unless you've read the classic Christian book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, or you grew up in 90s youth group and read DC Talk's remake of it. You know what I'm talking, what was it called? Jesus Freaks, that's exactly right. They just put a new cover on it, but... Um, We don't talk about it a lot, but the persecution of early Christians is a historical fact. During the time of the early church, the ruler of the Roman Empire, or the Caesar, uh, was the Emperor Nero. And Nero notoriously hated Christians and took pleasure in finding all kinds of ways to torture and murder them. So the first century Roman historian Tacitus tells us this, covered with the skins of beasts, The Christians were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. So Nero, when he wanted to throw a party at night in his gardens, he would use Christians as human torches to give light. And this was the fate of thousands and thousands of the early Christians. Even out of Jesus' original 12 disciples, Judas hung himself, and the apostle John lived to be an old man. But the other 10 all died as martyrs, as witnesses of Christ. And we don't know for sure, but historians estimate that by the end of the third century, there were about seven million Christians in the world and they think that as many as two million of them were killed for their faith and loyalty to Jesus. And so here's the question, why? Why were early Christians despised and persecuted by the Roman Empire? Why did the government consider them such a threat that they made confessing Christ a crime punishable by death? It's an important question for us to understand. And the simple answer is this. It's that these early Christians refused to pledge their allegiance to the Roman emperor. See, in ancient Rome, it was a pluralistic society, like the one we live in today. It wasn't like there was one official state religion that everyone had to adhere to. There were people of all different faiths and religions, and they were all part of the Roman Empire, and that was fine. Rome didn't require everyone to be of the same religion, but they did require all citizens to pledge their allegiance to the Caesar, to the Roman emperor. So you could believe whatever you want about God and everything as long as, is you were submissive and loyal to the emperor. And of course, this was a problem for early Christians because they didn't pledge their allegiance to any king but Christ. And they didn't swear their loyalty to any kingdom but Christ's. The empire wanted them to declare Caesar is Lord, and they couldn't do it because Christians by definition are those who declare Jesus is Lord, and therefore Caesar is not. So this got them into uh, all kinds of trouble. Now it's interesting, as Americans, we don't have a whole lot of exposure to these kinds of government systems of lords and kings and emperors and all that. We have a constitutional republic for a government, not a monarchy, so sometimes we get lost in this. But it just so happens this weekend we got a glimpse into this whole world of kings and monarchies and coronations and that sort of thing. Charles III crowned King of England yesterday. Uh, Mo and I watched a whole bunch of it yesterday yesterday morning. So fascinating, all these swords and scepters and robes and stuff. Um, And so we get this picture of of a king being crowned. But then you also, if you followed the news, have a whole bunch of people that aren't too happy about the whole thing. I don't know much about the British monarchy or politics or anything, but apparently not everybody's on board. And all week long, protesters have been waving these bright yellow signs that read, not my king. And they're saying, for whatever reason, I may live in England and he may be the king of England, but, but he's not my king. Um, this is, in effect, what the early Christians were doing when they declared that Jesus is Lord. We may live in the Roman Empire, and he may be the Roman Emperor, but he's not our king. He's not our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. And this is something that Nero and other emperors weren't going to tolerate. And thousands and thousands of Christians were persecuted and executed by the Roman government. But there was also persecution that the church faced that didn't come from the government, but it came from the streets. There were a bunch of places at that time that if the local folks around you found out you were Christian, they would take the law into their own hands. If a Christian family moved in to town, often the gatekeepers would attack their homes, harass their kids, attack their businesses, and sometimes kill them. So this was essentially mob rule, not unlike the period of lynching that black Americans suffered for many years in our own country. And this is actually the story that we see with Stephen. He wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He was captured by this local Jewish mob. And so they didn't bother calling the authorities when he said the wrong thing. They just took matters into their own hands and stoned him themselves. So, for the first 300 years, Christianity was seen as a revolutionary Jewish sect that was open to everybody and was especially good news for the poor and the oppressed. These Christians refused to pledge their allegiance to anyone but Christ. And therefore, they were persecuted and hated. It's important to understand though that the early church wasn't trying to take over the government. They weren't trying to get their people promoted to places of power or anything like that. They didn't care about that stuff. They were simply living together as members of an alternate society. They were just being, it was the church being the church. The one place in all of creation where the lordship of Christ ought to be unopposed. And so this often put Christians at odds with empires and economies that asked for their allegiance. Thousands upon thousands of Christians gave their lives for Jesus and his kingdom. And you would think that that would significantly stump the growth of Christianity. It's not exactly a great marketing campaign, right? If you join us, there's a good chance you're going to be beaten and killed. So... Here's the line where you can sign. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Like One of the reasons early Christianity spread so rapidly is that the world had never seen a group of people who faced death so well, who were so courageous and so convicted. They worshipped a king who had risen from the grave. Therefore, death wasn't a problem anymore. And so people saw that, and the kingdom of God continued to spread. So one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote, we are not, speaking as Christians, we are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's gangster. <laughs> now, it may sound a little radical. We're not used to talking about our Christian faith in such extreme terms, but remember... This was part of Jesus' own call to discipleship. He makes it clear from the very beginning that if we're going to follow him, martyrdom is on the table. He says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. A cross wasn't just a cute little Christian symbol that you wore around your neck. A cross was a symbol of an execution device. So to take up your cross and follow him is to take up your shovel and get ready to dig your own grave. Bonhoeffer would later say, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So starting with Stephen, the proto-martyr, millions of Christians have chosen Jesus over their own lives. And like I said before, we don't talk about them so often as American Protestants. Our Catholic and Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters are actually a lot better at this than we are. Uh, We get kind of weirded out when we go into their churches and see all these icons and statues of the saints. But what they're trying to do is remind us that we're not the first ones to walk this road that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, that we're part of this great tradition of sinners saved by grace who have laid down their lives for the one who laid down his life for the world. And so I want to just walk through a handful of these martyrs that we ought to know. The first is Ignatius of Antioch. He was the bishop of the church in Antioch which is the city our church is named after. It's the place where they were first called Christians. Ignatius once wrote a letter to a friend in which he said, I would rather die for Christ than rule the whole earth. Leave me to the beasts that I may, by them, be a partaker of God. And not long after he wrote this, Ignatius was arrested by the Roman government and was one of the first Christians to be thrown into the ring at the Roman Colosseum, and while thousands of people watched and laughed and cheered, he was eaten alive by lions. Next, Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he became a bishop of the church in Smyrna. And when he was 86 years old, Polycarp was arrested for his faith and slated for execution. But since he was such an old man, the Roman governor wanted to give him a way out. And so he said, Polycarp, think of your age, change your mind, curse the Christ, and you will be set free. Sounds like a pretty good deal. But Polycarp said, I have served him for 86 years, and he has done me no harm. How could I curse my king who saved me now? Listen clearly, I am a Christian. They burned him at the stake, but miraculously the flames never touched him. So finally, he was killed by the sword. Next, it wasn't just dudes that were martyrs. Perpetua and Felicity, two Christian women who lived in North Africa in the city of Carthage. Perpetua was from a prominent family, but at 22, she came to faith in Christ and was baptized. She was the mother of a young son when she was arrested for her faith, and so they gave her a chance to deny Christ and to spare her life and go back to her child, but she refused, and so she was thrown in jail. While Perpetua was in jail, she met Felicity, a slave who was eight months pregnant. And the two women stayed in prison together, refusing to renounce their faith. They were thrown to the wild beasts in the year 203. Let's fast forward a little bit, Thomas Cranmer. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 16th century. At the time, the Queen of England, Queen Mary, was a Catholic queen. And Thomas Cranmer had lent his support to the English Protestant Reformation that was happening, meaning he was calling on the church to make all kinds of changes, like allowing clergy to get married, for example, or rewriting the church's liturgy for worship services. And the Catholic queen wasn't too happy about this, and so she ordered that Cranmer be arrested and executed for treason. Uh, if you recognize its name, his name, it's because Thomas Cranmer is the one who put together the Book of Common Prayer originally, which we pray out of for almost every single week. He was burned at the stake. We'll jump ahead to the 20th century. Names you may have heard now: Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German Lutheran pastor and brilliant theologian, and he's most known for his work in resisting Hitler and the Nazis. And in 1930s, Bonhoeffer noticed that German Christians were being easily taken by Hitler. And so Bonhoeffer would speak out against the Nazis on his radio program until they shut him down. And then he started an illegal underground seminary that eventually got him arrested. He spent two years in prison, and then in 1945, 10 days before his prison camp was liberated, Bonhoeffer was executed by hanging. He was 39 years old. Next is someone we all know, but you may not have thought of as a martyr, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King was the son of a Christian minister and an ordained minister himself. And his work in the civil rights movement was 100% motivated by his faith in Jesus. And he regularly preached that the foundation of this movement was the doctrine, the Christian doctrine, of the Imago Dei. That every single human being is created in the image and likeness of God and therefore deserves to be treated with dignity. And so if you listen to King's speeches and sermons, his vision and vocabulary were so saturated with biblical truth And as much as he's kind of considered a role model by most these days, he was hated by many when he was alive. Dr. King was assassinated by gunshot in 1968. A couple more. Archbishop Oscar Romero. He was a Catholic priest in El Salvador in the 1970s. It was a time of escalating conflict between the Salvadorian military government and a group of radical insurgents. And Oscar Romero preached a gospel of peace and reconciliation. And in one particular sermon, he called on Christian Salvatorian soldiers to stop killing their fellow Christians who were on the other side of this conflict. The next day, Father Romero was at mass. He went forward to receive communion when a gunman walked into the church and shot two bullets into his heart, 1980. And finally, Dorothy Stang. She was born in Ohio, raised in Arizona, but as an adult, she followed a call from God to move to the Amazon basin in Brazil and spend the rest of her life living in extreme poverty among poor working farming families. Sister Dorothy loved God's word and she loved God's world. She advocated on behalf of these poor farmers whose land was being taken from them and she spoke out against the damage that was being done against God's creation in the Amazon. In 2005, Sister Dorothy was approached by two gunmen on a dirt road. And as they approached her, she took out her Bible and began reading the Beatitudes. And as she recited the words of Jesus, they fired six shots and killed her. 2005. That's just a sampling of the millions of Christians who have given their lives for their faith from Stephen and James to Peter and Paul to Polycarp and Perpetua, from the early church all the way through to Bonhoeffer and Romero and Dorothy Stang, Christian martyrdom is one of the great legacies of the church, and so we remember and we honor their faith and witness. But it's also important to understand that Christians didn't invent martyrdom. There have always been people who were willing to die for what they believed in. This wasn't new or unique to Christians at the time of Stephen. What was new and unique with Christians was forgiveness. The early Christians prayed for and blessed their enemies. Let's go back to our text, verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like somebody else we know? Jesus, as he's nailed to the cross, prays for the people who are killing him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Stephen, permeated and possessed by the spirit of Jesus, as he's being stoned to death, prays for the people who are killing him. Lord, do not hold their sins against them. That is Christian martyrdom. Not killing for your faith, but dying for your faith while forgiving those who are killing you. And as Stephen is being stoned to death, he prays for those who are killing him and asks God not to hold their sins against them. Here's a question. Did God answer that prayer? I mean, obviously it's a courageous and Christ-like prayer to pray, but did God actually answer Stephen's prayer? Well, it seems like he did at least with one of the people who was there that day. Let's go back to verse 57 real quick. I skipped a a part earlier. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. A few years later, this young man named Saul would meet Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus would radically transform his life. This young man named Saul would become known as the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary and martyr of all time. He was there that day when Stephen was being stoned. He wanted to help the Sanhedrin in any way he could, so he offered to hold their coats while they killed Stephen. And Stephen prayed, Lord, don't hold their sins against them. And it would appear that rather than holding Paul's sins against him, Jesus did indeed forgive him and redeem him and use his life to reach millions for the gospel. And so Stephen Stoning initiates the scattering of the church, which leads to the spreading of the gospel all around the world. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth all the way bend Oregon. <clears throat> so lastly, the truth is that for most of us, we'll never be called upon to be martyrs like Stephen or Polycarp or Perpetua. There are plenty of places in the world today where it's illegal to be Christian. Thousands of Christ followers are killed every year. their faith. We need to know that. Christian persecution is very real, and we don't know anything about it where we live. And so we should be thankful that we live in a land where we enjoy relative safety and comfort when it comes to practicing our faith. So most of us will never be persecuted for following Jesus, but it's still going to cost us something. In fact, sometimes it's going to cost us a lot. I think pretty much everyone who follows Jesus is gonna get some criticism on occasion. People are gonna judge you, they're gonna label you, they're gonna make assumptions about you. Sometimes it will come from outside the church, sometimes it will come from inside the church. And I wonder how many of you have had an experience like this where you were sincerely trying to follow Jesus, trying your best to do what you felt he was calling you to do, and the people around you didn't get it or didn't like it, and they criticized you or turned on you or maybe even left you. Maybe you've even been rejected by close friends or by family members or by fellow Christians. And you were legitimately just trying to follow Jesus, but they didn't like it. That stuff hurts pretty bad. And a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If that's you, I want you to know that you're not alone. Not only are you not alone in this room, but you're not alone in this great story that we're part of. In fact, suffering for your faith is part of the normative Christian experience. It always has been from the beginning. So the Apostle Peter has some encouraging words for us. Let me read these for you as sort of a blessing or a benediction. He writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So Antioch, don't be surprised when suffering comes your way you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And if you've been criticized, hurt, or rejected for trying to follow Jesus, remember, you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And you're going to be all right. Amen.